previously on Killing Lorenzo. The bottom line is the police department and everybody bought her story. She killed him, his body, she assassinated his character. She killed him twice. Cause she made it, she killed him, then she made his, his person look like a drug dealer. I felt disgusted, you know, like with some of the things that I heard, I'm like, no, that's not true. I said, bro, sure has something to do with him being killed. Cause of what they found to me. I mean, you have to blame somebody. Everybody wants to blame people. Did you have anything to do with Lorenzo's murder? No, no. If I knew who did this to Lorenzo, you would know who did this to Lorenzo. After Lorenzo Wright's death, his ex-wife, Shara, was on the move. She had six kids, all under the age of 15. As she told WREG in an exclusive sit-down interview, now all those young eyes were looking to her, and everything was on her shoulders. I'm Zanetta Lowe. And I'm April Thompson. This is Killing Lorenzen, Love, Basketball, Murder, Episode 8, The Lake. A note, this is an episode that contains explicit language, including a word some may find offensive. Cheryl Wright was still at odds with some of Lorenzen's family and friends who suspected she was somehow linked to his murder. But in one area, she and Lorenzen's parents came together the thing that they agreed on was holding someone responsible for that disregarded 911 phone call made from Lorenzen's phone the night he was killed. Georgetown 911, where's your emergency? Hello? Almost exactly one year to the day Lorenzen was killed, his mom, Deborah Marion, sued the cities of Germantown, Carrierville, and Shelby County for $2 million. When they heard bullets, shots, and they didn't respond, Nobody, nobody responded. They could have gotten there early. They might not have could have saved his life, but they might have could have got the murderer or some evidence to find the murderers. We could have had an open casket. We could have had a person instead of just what was left. Lorenzen's father, Herb Wright, joined in the lawsuit with Deborah. They sued Germantown because it was where the dispatchers worked. The city of Collierville was included for not following up on the missing persons report first filed by Deborah. And Shelby County was listed for failing to train cities to cooperate on 911 calls outside their jurisdiction. They need to be retrained or trained a certain way or something because that was not right the way they did my son. Daniel Lofton was Deborah's attorney back then. When we talked with him for this podcast, now nine years after Lorenzen's murder, he said that 911 call demanded action. There's no question as to what's on the tape. Nine loud gunshots. Uh, I mean, it's as, as, as clear cut uh, that it's a violent homicide or a would-be homicide in progress uh, as it can be. Uh, so, you know, to, to, that's top priority. I mean, that's, that's top tip-top priority. Cheryl would file a similar lawsuit in 2013, saying the 911 dispatch center did not have internet access at the employees' consoles when the call came in. It had been blocked because of misuse. That prevented dispatchers from tracking the location of the call from Lorenzen's phone. Cheryl's suit was also for $2 million, plus another million for Lorenzen's children. She told WREG in a phone interview she and the children talked and felt it was the right thing to do. He'll never be replaced, and I know that it, it, it's probably going to get uglier before it gets better. It's 
Eventually, Deborah and Herb's lawsuit was combined with Shara's. Carrierville and Shelby County were later dropped from the suit, but the case would never go to trial. On September 16, 2013, all sides showed up in court for mediation and reached a settlement with the city of Germantown for $135,000. After lawyer fees, there will be $85,000 to be divided equally among Wright's six children. That's not enough for no life. Deborah Marion isn't happy with the settlement, but says she, Lorenzen's dad, and his ex, Cheryl Wright, could never agree on things. Had we had all our ducks in a row, we could have had jury trial. And so that mediated stuff. Cheryl Wright told me by phone today the case needed to be resolved. And WRG cameras caught a rare moment in court that day. Shara and Deborah embraced in a hug. They held each other in comfort. But it would be short-lived. Healing became difficult as Shara found herself back in court less than a year later. Now the focus was on Lorenzen's estate and insurance money that was supposed to go to his six children. Shara was trustee over a $1 million life insurance policy that was supposed to go to the kids. Lorenzen had taken out the policy just months before his death. Probate court records show Shara Wright spent more than $973,000 in 10 months. I hope they will slow the roll on what's left. Put it somewhere to draw interest so the kids can have some money left when they get ready to go to college. But Shara was called into probate court over spending and to explain how she went through almost the entire million in less than a year, leaving just $100,000. In 2014, WREG aired a story on one of Shara's court appearances about her spending. Shara is speaking from the witness stand, so it is a little difficult to hear. We use trust funds. Lorenzen Wright's ex-wife, Shara, says everything she did was for her kids. These were the children's money that I spent on the children. These were the, the children's money that I bought a house for the children. She says she used her children's trust to buy a home in East Shelby County, renovations, furniture, and luxury cars for the oldest children. But nothing was put aside for their college education. You had to invest in some other account that's for the kids' education. Not in my money. Her former father-in-law says she spent the money carelessly. He launched a legal battle demanding the bank be in charge of the children's estate from here on out. Herb was eventually named guardian over Lorenzen's pension fund that was going to the children. The battle over mismanagement of money would play out in court for years. But Shara Wright had turned to something else as she went on with her life after Lorenzen. She found a calling to the ministry. Mount Olive Church Number 1 is a small church off a winding back road in Carrierville, Tennessee, just a few miles outside the Memphis city limits. We'll tell you more about the church's connection to the case a bit later. But for now, just know that it was where Shara and her kids had turned for worship and Shara for training in the ministry. I visited the church on a random Sunday in June, hoping to meet some people who could tell me about Shara's time there. Your destination is on the left. Plenty of cars in the parking lot. Mount Olive sits just off the main road, and Sunday morning service was already underway. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that we're discussing for, and they're not, they're going to soon pass away, though. Jesus said, if you do that, it'll be added. Yeah. 
but we're trying to get it another way. I was not allowed to speak with the pastor, Oliver Finley, that day, but you will hear from him in an upcoming episode. Instead, I spoke with assistant pastor, Damon Dickerson, who agreed to meet me later for a sit-down interview. I became a leader in the church probably around 2009, 2010, somewhere. Dickerson told us how Shira Wright came to Mount Olive Number 1 in 2007 before Lorenzen's murder. You know, we saw our mother coming in with children and um, who wanted to bring her children to Christ and get her children to know Christ, and her children became active in the choir and in Sunday school and Bible study, and she was right there. You know, she brought them to church, and she not only brought them, but she was there with them. Soon, Shira was taking on some lead positions at the church. We also saw a picture, um, and I think um, it, and it was a picture of Shara with the pastor and the leaderships of the church, and they were, and she had on a robe. And I think they said that she would, became a minister or led she, a service. Or can yeah, you tell she us did about that? A minister. Well, with that's a personal calling, um, and you know, you go through some training, and then you go through ordination. Um, and so if you go through training and you go through the ordination, um, you're given a certificate of ministry. Uh, ministry entails a lot. There are different areas in ministry. What was her demeanor then? Was she excited um, about being a part, starting something like this? Sure, yes, she was. She was excited. She was well-versed in the scriptures, and she was excited about it. Shira was even the featured speaker, delivering the message at a few of the Sunday services. But Dickerson said at one point she ended up leaving the church. He didn't explain why or if anything led her to that decision. Shira also moved on romantically, at age 43, marrying her second husband, 49-year-old Reginald Robinson, a deputy in the Shelby County Sheriff's Office. Their marriage license is dated March 27, 2014. Reginald Robinson had been recently widowed when he and Shira wed. Friends tell us when his wife Inga Robinson was dying of cancer, it was Lorenzen and Shara who helped with some of the expenses. The two couples had been friends of sorts. But Shara and Reginald's marriage didn't last. We're told they divorced, though we couldn't find any official divorce records in court. Not only was Shara trying her hand at ministry and remarrying, she found another calling, author. She wrote a book titled Mr. Tell Me Anything. It has a copyright date of 2012. The story is about the relationship between the main character, Sharon Roberson, who is described as the prettiest thing you have ever seen with an apple bottom ass and a naturally tight stomach, and her husband, Mr. Tell Me Anything, an up-and-coming pro basketball player who is four years younger than Sharon and just a teen when they met. Yeah, just like Lorenzen and Shara's story. The book, which reads like a steamy romance novel, traces the couple's six-year courtship to their troubled marriage and the chaos that ensued, from cheating to family to greed. Some say the fictional book Shara authored, Mr. Tell Me Anything, was a reflection of her troubled marriage. And when she wrote her book, um, you know, we, we, did a, we did a show on, on, on her book. Memphis sports columnist and radio show host Jeff Calkins remembers discussing Mr. Tell Me Anything on his show. I think it was the surreal quality of the book. Like, really? It's a, sort of like O.J. Simpson writing If I Had Done It. You know, it was a thinly disguised um, 
again, a slam at, at Lorenzen, who if you killed him, um, to then write a book where you're smearing him uh, through this thinly disguised narrative is, is pretty hideous um, and surreal, weird. Um, so, um, but yeah, it was a, it was certainly a, it was certainly a, a talker. Mr. Tell Me Anything has 12 chapters and 231 pages. The prologue sounds strikingly similar to Shira's own story. She writes, when Mr. Tell Me Anything meets Sharon Roberson, he is a star basketball player in Mississippi. Through his travels and chiseled face, the two meet and it was love at first sight. She hated that he was not of age, still a minor, but they loved their friendship and Sharon's mom had just died. They met when Sharon's father asked members of the basketball team he coached to help his daughter move. It's the same way Shara and Lorenzen met. Mr. Tell Me Anything grew up in poverty with hints of abuse and neglect as a child and a mother who was not in the picture. Sharon tells of their first night together in his grandmother's house in Mississippi and at the grandmother's insistence that Sharon sleep in the room with Mr. Tell Me Anything. He was close to his grandmother, just like Lorenzen. Sharon even said Mr. Tell Me Anything was the one who wanted her to get pregnant, throwing her birth control pills out the window. But Sharon called Mr. Tell Me Anything's grandmother an ally, a force to be reckoned with. She was more like Sharon and the one Mr. Tell Me Anything could depend on. We asked Lorenzen's grandmother, Louise Vassar, about the book and her grandson, who she calls Ganya. Nerves, just like she wrote that book. She got nerves of elephant, just like she wrote that book. Gunny this, gunny that, gunny this, gunny that. Though the book never lists Mr. Tell Me Anything's real name, it does chronicle the stormy relationship between Sharon and Mr. Tell Me Anything's family, even down to draft night when his family didn't want Sharon sitting at the table with their new baby since Mr. Tell Me Anything and Sharon weren't married. In the book, Sharon describes his family as greedy and focused on his money. She said at draft night they were already adding numbers in their head while Sharon was, quote, subtracting their little ghetto fabulous money-hungry behinds right out of the equation. Here's how Lorenzen's mom saw it. You know, Sharon has accused everybody of being after his money. And they know good and damn well I used to pitch a bitch when he bought me them high-ass purses. Uh-uh, no, nah, I wouldn't have won. She know I wouldn't have won. I'm the mama that wants nothing but the love and time with my son. And it ain't about the money. Uh-uh. My mama, now that's a whole different realm. Whole different. Like I told when y'all said, why look at that wrist and look at their hands. Lorenzo knew what made her happy, and he did it. Made her happy. Mr. Tell Me Anything's career in the NBA is riddled with Sharon's claims of cheating, calling his hotel rooms and having women answer the phone, even messages from women on his cell phone. But Sharon always gave in when he apologized. But it happened again and again, Shara wrote. The time she caught him cheating usually resulted in her trips to the jewelry store for makeup gifts, a 12-carat tennis bracelet or a diamond tennis necklace, Shara also describes physical violence between the characters in the book, saying Mr. Tell Me Anything had struck Sharon so hard she was laid out on the floor of their Georgia mansion, children all present. He'd only struck her three times before, but she'd never hit the ground. 
Was there ever any violence in their relationship? Because I think she said in the book. She, yeah, she alluded to that in the book. She claimed he hit her. Light as her ass is, if he had hit her, who would have seen the bruise? Everybody that was looking. Light as she was, think about it. Big as this man was, where your bruises? Call the police and show them your black eye. Show them your bruises. You know, call the police, get them locked up. But in the book, Cheryl writes, Mr. Tell Me Anything often told Sharon his mother had beaten him as a child, and this was why custody was given to his grandmother. She said his thighs reminded him each time he showered of being beaten by a bull whip. She wondered who could do such a thing to their own flesh and blood. Here's Lorenzen's mom, Deborah. Have you read that book that she wrote? Nope. But the, the police, that the one that actually really got into the case, they said she... Uh, it's in the book. Well, it's all in the book. I ain't read. They say it's. She, they, they don't understand how stupid can you be to write a book and you read and dissect the book. You know she can't to read the book. That was that was telling them. Keep telling me. Just read the book. But Shara's book never gets into a murder. It ends with another reconciliation between the still married Sharon and Mister Tell Me Anything, saying it was the beginning of their end, hinting that a second book would follow as their story continued. But Shara never put out that second book. After her second marriage to Reginald Robinson ended, she and the kids moved to Texas for a while and then to California where she had family. Meanwhile, Lorenzen's mom, Deborah, was still in Memphis fighting to keep Lorenzen's murder in the news and on everyone's mind. There was still no movement in the case. Every time I call, it's the same thing. We don't have any more leads. We don't, we don't know anymore. But somebody knows something. If our police can't do it, they need a little help. So Deborah sought out national attention by reaching out to the show TV One Celebrity Crime Files, a show that profiles the life and untimely death of some of the biggest celebrities. Deborah asked everyone she knew to text the TV One show, requesting them to profile Lorenzen's murder. They got over a thousand voice messages. I text 560 myself, and my friends and family did the rest. It worked. In March 2013, they came to Memphis to shoot a segment on Lorenzen Wright's case. Been waiting on this day. I knew it was gonna happen, but I just didn't know when. Deborah Marion is ready for the national spotlight. No time to be nervous. This is what she wanted. The attention of the national show, Celebrity Crime Files, to tell the story that haunts Deborah, the murder of her famous basketball son, former NBA player and Grizzly star, Lorenzen Wright. Or maybe it could work on someone's conscience to say, well, okay, I've been holding this almost three years. It's time for me to let this out. Show producers spent days in Memphis shooting video and interviewing police, family, friends, and Lorenzen's former teammates. Lorenzen's oldest son, Lorenzen Jr., and some of his siblings were supposed to be interviewed as well, but didn't show up. Lorenzen Jr. was coming, but I guess the mom changed her mind about letting him come. So Deborah talked, reminisced reflected. I teared up maybe twice. On the third time, I was I can't do this. Celebrity Crime Files producers say they had the Lorenzen Wright story on their radar, but when they talked to Deborah Marion and saw her passion, they knew it was a story everyone would care about. I'm going to keep on pushing until somebody just throw their hands up and say, I surrender. I got to tell this later something. The Lorenzen Wright story aired on Celebrity Crime Files in the summer of 2013. At the end of the show, a number was put on the screen for people to call if they had any tips on the case. It was just one of the ways Deborah, a mother desperate for answers, reached out to find some. Networks, 
we're doing specials on it. Uh, like I said, Sports Illustrated, newspapers. That's WRAG's former sports director, Glenn Carver. As Lorenzen Wright's murder case got national coverage, here at home, uncertainty continued to swirl in the community as more time passed with no arrests. The vast majority of people figured this will never be solved. And I think the city uh, and his fans, uh, let's say abroad across the country, wanted closure on it and felt like they would never get it. I was wondering, would they ever find out any, anything about his, his uh, murder? his assassination. I use that word uh, uh, because we only think about that word in, in, in relationship to um, politicians and heads of states and all of that, but that was an assassination. Assassination. That's how Elsie Lewis Bailey, Lorenzen's high school principal, defined his death. And like many other Memphians, she wondered why there seemed to be so much silence in such a high-profile case. It looked like it just went dead. You know, nobody, you didn't hear anybody talking about it um, for such a long period of time. And I just didn't understand that. I thought maybe, I, didn't, I don't know if I thought they had forgotten. I just didn't hear anything. Deborah says at certain points during the investigation, police would privately keep her in the loop. Larry Godwin headed up MPD when the case first broke. Godwin would call every week. Every week. He would call. We got this. We got this. We're going to start recording this. Like when she went to Houston, they told me, don't worry about it. We got her. As Ms. D, matter of fact, I would go, I could have told you what store she was in because I was talking to the people that's, that got her on surveillance. We had regular phone calls. Director Lorenzo Wright's mom's on the phone for you. Director Lorenzo Wright's mom wants, wants a, 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 a meeting with you. We had regular, I mean, she she did. She made sure that, that um, her son's case stayed first and foremost on our minds all the time. Uh, there was never a long period of time that I didn't hear from her. There was never a long period of time. Tony Armstrong became police director after Godwin retired. Did she ever say, did she ever express her extreme frustration? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I don't understand this. I don't understand that. Uh, and I would always take a point to her to try to explain things from her from a law, law uh, standpoint. Um, in her mind, I know who did this. In her mind, I know who's responsible for this. So it was very frustrating for her to say, I know what's going on. And I know who's responsible, responsible for this, and I'm telling you who's responsible for this. Why are you not doing something about it? But again, how can you take somebody to court or how can you try somebody on a case with no evidence, with nothing to substantiate that they actually played an active part uh, in Lorenzo's murder? So no proof, no arrest, and Armstrong says they were aware of the public perception about the case including all the theories and rumors. There were a lot of things that, that were thrown out there. My, I mean, my phone literally rung off the hook. Uh, I talked to people that Lorenzo played ball with. I talked to people that were friends of his, childhood friends, uh, even mild acquaintances. You know, everybody who was anybody had something to say. Everybody that was anybody uh, initially thought that they were being helpful by throwing as much information. And that's the way investigations go, um, by throwing everything that we had you know, so we got all, initially just a whole slew of information, and you have to meticulously go through that information and say, you know, 
is this relevant? Maybe not right now, but we'll file it and come back to it later. Some of that information police were tasked with sifting through came from a psychic. Abigail Noel, N-O-E-L. We sat down at Abigail's dining room table for our interview. Thank you, April. Thank you, Zanetta. I'm very happy to have you guys here. We didn't know what to expect, but Abigail lives in a traditional ranch-style home. In place of living room furniture, there were a few chairs lining the walls, kind of like what you'd use if you were hosting a group meeting or Bible study at your house. Abigail grew up in California. She moved to Memphis more than a decade ago and works as what she calls an intuitive therapist. I really want to say, say that people go, what? Uh, I work with a lot of uh, heavy trauma, grief suicide, drug overdose, and then also just common problems. You know, somebody's mad at their husband or wife or their mother. So I'm, I'm a therapist, uh, but I work very intuitively. I have been uh, in tune or aware of my psychic abilities uh, since I was born. So at what point um, did it come that you started knowing about murder cases? Uh, Lorenzen Wright's case was the first uh, murder case that was ever brought to my attention. And at the time, I really didn't understand what, what, what was happening. I didn't know who he was. Um, I had stopped watching uh, TV or news or this or that. And so I didn't really know who he was. But that was the first time that, that, that God <clears throat> had ever asked me to do that type of work. And again, it was pretty confusing. All I knew is that I had the truth and I had to do something with it. Abigail says she saw a Facebook post from Alexis Bradley, a woman we previously mentioned Lorenzen was supposedly dating. And the next thing I knew, it was several days later, I happened to be walking through the living room uh, of my then mother-in-law when his body was found. And that's when it, it hit me. Just, I mean, it, when I, I call it a drop down, this immediate information started coming through. Like literally the moment I heard and I saw, I saw the news footage which showed Dennis McNeil holding Deborah back that's immediately when the psychic uh, reading, the, the prophetic uh, information started coming through to me. I stopped dead in my tracks in the living room. I felt Lorenzen Wright's presence, so I could feel his energy and his emotion. And uh, he started telling me immediately. In fact, I was literally uh, transported. I could, I could see the road that he was walking down. I could feel that he was walking with somebody that he knew. They're walking down a dirt road. And so literally I'm standing in my mother-in-law's living room and he starts showing me what happened to him. So I went through the murder at that point. Walk, he walked, he and this person that he's walking with that he made me aware in that first moment. I figured out later who that was. But uh, in, that, in that time, he was telling me this was my friend. He was supposed to be my friend. He was on his phone. I knew that before the family will validate that. I said he tried to make a phone call his phones in his right hand he could see some apartments to the right and he had a friend that lived there I, I knew that and it was validated by the family he wanted to run and he was going to try but they were right in his face um, I even know what the shooter said I can I could hear the words he said what are you going to do now pretty boy basketball player what are you going to do now motherfucker what are you going to do now I'm going to fuck your face up that's what he told him. And so that's why Lorenzen put his hand up because this guy had the gun right in his face. The first bullet went through his left hand. The second bullet went in his temple right above his left eye. That's when he died. There were many, there were about seven or eight shots that were fired after that. 
they had gone there earlier in the day and cut the fence. They showed me that too. So it was planned already. The story you just heard is what Abigail says she shared with Deborah. How did you come in contact with Abigail and what, what, why did you think why did you think she could help you? I, girl, I was getting in touch with any, everybody. Help me, please. Help me. You know, like I wasn't getting nowhere, so I was trying, you know, I would contact the police, other police, or other town. Y'all just don't understand. Uh, a lot of people, I was, whatever, I wasn't working here, I was, well, maybe this person can help me, maybe this person. I got psychics, uh, what they call two head doctors, I did all that. Did you all ever pay her? Well, Abigail? Yes. She did it all on for real. She did it all yes, for real. But see, she, Lorenza had already been talking about like some stuff she was saying. Couldn't nobody have told her that but me or one of my children or Lorenza. Give me an example. Some of the stuff, uh, like what happened in Mississippi. When he got burned in Mississippi with the fireworks. She know about that. Cheryl told her brother to blow on your back over the Roman County, blow the back over the Roman County on the 4th of July. So there were things that Abigail knew. Mm-hmm. You believe her? Yes. Girl, yes. Lorenzen's friend Michael Gibson said the same. She had actually even told him about, you know, certain things that me and him did that I know no one else knew, you know? I'm like, whoa. She, I'm like, where'd you get that from? She said, Lorenzen's standing right here. He told me. I'm like, no way. There's no way. And so that's why I kind of believed her. And she was like, well, you know, Lorenzen loves you. He cares about you. He just wants you, you know, to know that he's okay and... He's, he, he also gave me a message, told me to tell you to stay out of Memphis. Have you been back? No. Not since the funeral? Well, I, well, I've been to, to Deborah's house. I go to Deborah's house, and that's it, as far as I go. Abigail also went out to the field where Lorenzen's body was found with Deborah and the family. Because she didn't even know where it was. She told me, don't take me, just take me in the vicinity. And I parked a long way. It was too really tired for me to walk from there where I parked, too. And she said, my chest, ooh, we in the clothes. I, I ain't say nothing. She's, cause I'm trying to test the strength. Is that right? I ain't gonna say a word. So she said, this is it. And she's like, oh, my chest is burning. Man, they start throwing up something. But that was the spot. Who's there? Where he was found. Mm -hmm. And right there in the woods in Southeast Memphis, where Lorenzen's body had been found, Abigail shared something else. And Deborah was there and we prayed and we spoke justice, and um, we did burn some sage, and we, we were raising the vibration. That's when the name Big Bill was given to me. It just dropped down like that, and the, the J initial I'd had since day one, since the original reading, I had, and I'd also had a description of, of uh, the two shooters, but Big Bill, that name was given to me that day that we cleared um, with the family uh, that site, and so it, again, it was kind of a progression over several months that I was able to put all of the pieces and the names and the initials together. Listen closely to this audio uploaded to YouTube in November of 2014. I was given the name Big Bill, and I was told that Big Bill had worked at the House of Dubs, the second shooter. So we've got Big Bill. He's a very large gentleman, um, both in weight and stature. Um, the second person, um, I, I believe he may have a J initial in his name or, or an L or both. Abigail says she went public with her allegations because she'd already gone to police. Godwin told us he did in fact meet with Abigail in 2011, but couldn't remember all the details. He said, quote, 
As I recall, it did not provide any additional suspects or information that MPD was not aware of. Here's what Tony Armstrong said. If you get a phone call and you say, hey, I'm a psychic and I'm telling you this, you know, how much, how much credence do you put in that? How much, you know, weight do you put to that? Uh, how can you go to somebody from a representative from the AG's office and say, I developed a suspect because a psychic told me to? You know, it's not exact science or whatever. Initially, when you get that information, where did it go from? So um, what do you do with it? We basically at that point treated it as if we were getting information from a regular citizen. And so you treat it like a tip, so to speak. Absolutely. What the public didn't know at the time was police had gotten another tip from an informant. They had a jailhouse snitch. In this particular case, uh, it appears that there has been a level of cooperation from somebody uh, with firsthand knowledge in the case. And that somebody was Shara's own flesh and blood. It was January 2007 at these East Memphis apartments. Jimmy Martin Jr. lived here with his girlfriend, 24-year-old Martha Bounds. It was apartment number five where Martha Bounds was killed. That audio came from a story I did in November of 2010. We told you last episode about people who went before the grand jury, including Shara's cousin, Jimmy Martin, from Batesville, Mississippi. Here's more from that piece. Martin was tried for first-degree murder and acquitted. The jury deadlocked on a second-degree murder charge, so he faces a retrial next February. But that next February came and went without Jimmy Martin being tried again for the death of Martha Bounds. Hi, how are you? How's it going? Nice We met with Martha's sisters, Felicia Bowens and Tame Bowens Reed at Felicia's home in Batesville. The women look a lot alike. They're short, brown skin with round faces. Tame wasn't planning to talk, but sat next to her sister at the start of the interview. They clasped hands under the table and finished one another's sentences. So much so, it's hard to understand who's who. It's not a day go by that, you know, I don't even think about her, you know. Martha, an Army veteran, was working as a security guard in Memphis when she began dating Jimmy Martin, a former Navy corpsman turned rapper. While they all grew up in Batesville, Felicia and Tame said they didn't know Jimmy. She started off really started excited, off, yeah. happy, you know. And then we started getting phone calls from him. And he told me, your sister's doing this and your sister that. And I'm like, okay, you know. And uh, I talked to her and trying to find out what was going on. And she was like, I don't know what, what, you know, why he's saying that. He was going in her phone, checking the phones, you know, trying to see if she's talking to other, other guys and stuff like that. Real je jealous streak. Really jealous. Martha and Jimmy's relationship turned violent. In April of 2006, police were called to their apartment after a fight. It was hard to see, you know, your sister scratched up, you know, and glass in her hair and the windows, the car window. I remember the car windows shattered, you know, and you see uh, like a hammer-like thing uh, on the seat where he shattered it with, you know, and uh, he just sitting there with no remorse. The fighting continued, even on Martha's job, so much so she was fired in January of 2007. I made the comment, I was like, you know, I'm afraid that he's going to love her to death. Sadly, Felicia's fear became a reality. On January 13, 2007, Jimmy Martin shot and killed Martha Bounds. That's when yeah, we, get, we all got the news. We got the news.
What did your dad say? He said, my baby is gone. He said, my baby is gone. Jimmy admitted to shooting Martha, but said it was an accident. He said they heard a noise at the front of the apartment, went to check it out, and as he went to put the gun on safety, it discharged. Memphis police took Jimmy into custody the night of Martha's death, but released him without charge two days later. He even called my other sister, Teresa, one time to talk to her, you know. To try to explain. Exactly. How can you explain that you killed our sister? You can't, it's no, I mean, you said somebody was breaking in the house. Why you just in doubt 911? You was trying to take the safe, trying to show her how to take a safety off of a gun. This child was a veteran. She could put take a gun apart and put it together in 30 seconds. She survived a war, yes. but came back and got killed. Police continued their investigation, and almost a year later, Jimmy was charged and later indicted with Martha's murder. He went to trial in the summer of 2009. The jury found him not guilty of first-degree murder, but hung on second-degree. Jimmy was out of jail while he waited for a retrial. That didn't happen until 2012. Testimony started May 1st, and three days later, a jury found Jimmy Martin guilty of second-degree murder. We've learned it was this very same month that Martin began cooperating with Memphis police in the Lorenzen Wright murder case. His trial attorney was Coleman Garrett, the same lawyer you've heard from throughout this podcast, retained by Shara during the early phases of Lorenzen's murder investigation. That man lawyer that Cheryl had, that's the lawyer that Lorenzen had had for Jimmy, Cheryl's cousin, when he killed his girlfriend. He told his girlfriend he was going to blow her motherfucking brains out. In a few minutes, she didn't shut her mouth. He got that pillow. She kept talking. He put that pillow over her face and blow her brains out. And Gunny had him a lawyer. I remember. I remember when all that happened. Um, Lorenzo told me, he said, man, sure want me to help this nigga um, pay for his lawyer and all that. And he done, he done killed his girlfriend or did something harm his girlfriend, whatever the story was, situation was. He like, I ain't giving that nigga nothing. <laughs> he was against it. Yeah, he was against it. But what did Shara say? Did you ever hear her say anything? No, nah, never. Nothing from her. I didn't talk to her about it. But she did it anyway? She did it anyway. In January 2013, Martin was sentenced to 20 years in prison. But that was a deal offered by the prosecutor. The transcript reads, In order to expedite things, I actually made an offer to Mr. Skane this morning, an agreement of a settlement to just have him sentenced and go away to the state pen. Gerald Skane was Martin's new attorney, who also said to the judge at the start of the hearing, there is some other information going on with Mr. Martin, judge. He never said what that other information was. He has the audacity to, right after he got charged, to start telling about something else because in my mind, in my heart, he thinking he's gonna get out. Despite this cooperation police were getting behind the scenes from Shara's cousin Jimmy, they didn't make an arrest in the case. But Justin is going to be served soon because I got that feeling. It's the only birthday wish this mother has for her son. No candles needed, just closure. Because I'm going to have them before the end of this year. That was November 4th, 2017, what would have been Lorenzen's 42nd birthday. And Deborah was right. Five days later, there would be a break in the case. 
We start you off with breaking news on News Channel 3 at 4. It's been seven years since Memphis basketball star Lorenzen Wright was found dead, but today a major development in the case. That day was November 9th, 2017. As we learned more, it became all hands on deck in the WREG newsroom. I sat in April's anchor chair for the 4 p.m. news while she headed straight to Deborah's house. She was the only reporter there. Today we've learned that police may be closer to finding Wright's killer after a gun believed to be the murder weapon was found in a body of water in Walnut, Mississippi. Now that's in Tippa County. WREG's April Thompson is live to break all of this down, all of this new information. Of course, April has been following this story for years, even talked to Wright's mom today. April. That's right. We're we're standing in Lorenzen Wright's mother's living room right now, still a shrine to him. You see him there with his children. And like you said, it's been seven years since he was killed. And his mom, Deborah Marion, has been waiting for some type of closure and some type of answers. And you got that today. Tell us what happened um, when you got the call. When I got the call, I was like, what is going on? Because hadn't anything been going, you know, I hadn't heard anything for a long, long time. And they said they had some good news for me. I was like, tell me now. During one of our interviews for the podcast, Deborah walked us back through that pivotal moment. So what about the day that um, they found the first first clue? Gun. How did you find out about that? And what was your uh, did you call me? If it wasn't for everybody, I wouldn't have called nobody because she called me. I'm like, uh-uh, I ain't heard nothing. I said, wait a minute, let me call somebody. For the woman who first suspected something wasn't right when her son disappeared and sounded the alarm, then continued to keep both the case and memory alive, it was a moment Deborah Marion had been waiting for. I could do nothing but cry. That's the only thing I could do. Only thing I could do was cry. Because this let me know they really working. As our live coverage continued throughout the evening, they think a gun found in a lake in Walnut, Mississippi, was one of the weapons used to shoot and kill Lorenzen Wright. We have much more on this breaking news update. Where we are now is where Lorenzen Wright was found in a wooded area. Word was quickly spreading about this long awaited development in one of the biggest murder mysteries in Memphis history. There was shock that it had finally, whoa, we're going to get here. And to think that that was nine years after that vigil till the gun was found um, is fairly stunning. I mean, this thing just came out of the clear blue to me, you know, because of the years that had passed. But yeah, I couldn't believe it. And then when they said that they had found a gun in this lake, I still was trying to believe how would a gun be in water that long. The lake where the gun was found sits about an hour southeast of Memphis. It's on a rural road just off a four-lane highway that runs through Mississippi and Tennessee, including parts of Collierville. Memphis police wouldn't provide many details at the time, but Walnut residents reported seeing unmarked cars near the lake in June of 2017. And the police chief there said it was around the same time she got word about a dive team. Memphis police confirmed the weapon was found by a dive team. We talked to an official who doesn't want to be named, but saw the team at work at the lake. It wasn't until today that we found out what they were looking for and what they eventually found. Listen to this audio as we walked with Deborah at the side of the lake the morning after the news broke. I just can't no imagine nobody just coming down here and throwing a gun. You can't even see it from the road. 
So how would you, you had to have known before that this was here? Deborah Marion says she has no ties to this area. And as far as she knows, her son Lorenzen didn't either. No, no, never. I want them to find out who the gun belongs to and put pressure on that person because that person not going to take the blame for somebody else if they let somebody else have the gun. He, gonna have, he or she going to have to tell somebody. I hope somebody gets scared. And soon Deborah would finally get what she wanted. On the next episode of Killing Lorenzen. Seven years after the murder of Memphis basketball star Lorenzen Wright, a suspect has now been indicted. I'm feeling blessed. Really, really, really blessed. Do you think more people will be arrested in this? I'm sure it will be. The Lorenzen Wright case has stayed in the public eye for many years. And we have never given up hope that we would bring those responsible parties to justice. Today, we're able to announce another piece of the puzzle is in place. For seven straight years, I, this is how I would go to God. God, please get this bitch. God, please get this whole Lord, please get Cheryl Robinson. Please get Cheryl Robinson for killing my son. Killing Lorenzen, Love, Basketball, Murder is a production of WREG-TV in Memphis. It's reported and hosted by us, Zanetta Lowe and April Thompson. Our editor is Josh Strong. Original music, Lorenzen's theme by Boo Mitchell and Uriah Mitchell of Royal Studios, Memphis, Tennessee. Cover art by Corinne Zeta. David Royer is in charge of web and social. Eric Lipford handles our file research. And thanks to our colleagues, Alex Coleman, Caleb Hilliard, and Sean Scott for their assistance. Jessica Davis is our intern. And none of this would be possible without the support of our assistant news director, Sarah Van Arnhem, and our news director, Bruce Moore. While you're here, be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate and share it.